We're gonna get to 1 John. It will take us a few minutes. I'm gonna lay basically almost like a ton of groundwork getting there, but I want us to get this theological concept. And then we're gonna get into um, 1 John chapter four. um, And we're gonna just look at a couple of verses there. That's on page, um, I think 1023 in your your pew Bibles, if you wanna look there. But like I said, it's gonna take us a few minutes to get there. First of all, question that I got for you. I don't know if you like a good mystery or don't like a good mystery. I don't know if you watch that. My, my wife, she subscribes. She loves Hallmark channels, and I'm not saying anything bad about that. But there's also this other channel, like if you can't get enough Hallmark, you can subscribe to multiple Hallmark channels. And there's even this Hallmark Mysteries channel, and she's constantly watching that because she loves a good mystery. I don't know whether or not the Apostle Paul would have enjoyed a mystery, but I know this, he liked the word mystery. He uses it over and over again in his epistles that he writes. As he writes to the church at Ephesus, he uses the word mystery eight times in just six chapters. As he writes to the the church in Colossae, um, in the book of Colossians, he writes again four times he uses the word mystery. And what Paul is saying as he's using the word mystery is he says, there's this mystery that's in the Old Testament. There's a mystery of God's will. There's God working his purpose, but we didn't yet know it, but it's being set forth. It's being made manifest in Jesus. He calls it the mystery of Christ. It's the mystery that's been hidden in the ages, he says. It's a mystery of the gospel, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. But Paul says, it's now being revealed. It's being revealed to his saints. And here is the mystery. You would go like, okay, what is that mystery? Well, here's what that mystery is. The mystery that Paul is talking about is how does a God that is perfectly just perfectly righteous, upholding his justice. How does this God that is both both perfectly just and yet ferociously loving, how does he deal with sinners such as you and I? Like how does God uphold his justice and also God uphold his love in dealing with sinners who have rebelled and sinned against him? How does God's justice, how is it satisfied and his justice is met? And how is his mercy and his love, how is that upheld? And the mystery, as Paul said, it's being revealed in Christ. It is being revealed. The mystery is being made manifest. The mystery is being made known in the cross of Christ, that in the cross of Christ, both the justice and the love of God that they kiss. Now, listen, I don't want to be so myoptic in the, in the storyline of the Bible that in preaching the story of the line of the Bible that we somehow miss the storyline of the Bible. So we are in, I think, sermon number 38 in the storyline of the Bible. And so sometimes, like it's that thing, you could miss the forest for all the trees and maybe possibly you could miss the, the uh, storyline of the Bible in the studying of the storyline of the Bible. And so let me give for you an overview of that storyline. That storyline is so simple that God, as an overflow of his Trinitarian nature, as a display to his glory, that God creates this vast and beautiful creation. That creation is putting God's glory on display. As the psalmist writes that, as we look at the stars and the heavens, as we think about the vastness of the, of the solar system, that it is God's glory that's on display here. God, as a pinnacle of this, of his creation, God creates man. He makes man and woman, and God looks back on everything that is created, and God declares it to be good, yea, very good, as it says in Genesis. 
He places man and woman in a garden. He gives them everything that they possibly could ever need in that garden, and yet they sin against him. That even though they have everything that is needed, they sin against God and sin wrecks everything. And the just punishment for sin is death. Not just dying, but ultimately separation from the holiness and the, and the fellowship of God, the communion with God. But as Paul writes in Ephesians, but God who is rich in mercy, God as a manifestation for his love for us, God provides a substitute. And that is the mystery. That is how God's justice is upheld and his love and his grace is upheld as well. It comes together in the person of Jesus as we understand Jesus on the cross in our place, dying as a substitute. That it is God who becomes the substitute. It's God who is becoming a punishment-bearing, wrath-absorbing, righteous-transforming substitute. The mystery of God summed up, the gospel summed up in four words would be this, Jesus in my or our, for the believers in the room, we could say that, Jesus in our place. That is what's occurring on the cross it's, more, it's important for us to make that distinction that Jesus isn't just dying for you, although he is dying for you, but Jesus on the cross is dying instead of you. And not just dying, he's bearing the wrath of a holy and righteous God on the cross. The pain of the cross isn't just the nails that they put into his wrist and his feet. It's not just the, the crown that is on his head. The pain of the cross is the wrath of God being unleashed on the Son of God on the cross. And he's bearing that for us. In our place, Jesus has stood condemned on the cross. Substitution has been a major theme throughout the Bible. Some of you may go, okay, I know that and that, that, that I understand that, but you gotta understand there are errors all over the place. Teachers and people that would teach something different than that. Folks that people share on Facebook and they like, and yet they don't believe this, that Jesus is the substitute. But to understand, that's why we've been in the storyline of the Bible, because every picture of substitution whispers the name of Jesus. All the way back in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve, after they sinned against God, they realized that they were naked and they, they were ashamed. It's a picture of what sin does for us. There's a condemnation that we feel when we sin that's right and it's good and that's the way they felt. They didn't feel it for however long they, they were in the garden. They never felt that way. They were naked before, but they just didn't know it. And now all of a sudden they're naked and they know it and there's a deep shame that they feel so Adam and Eve, they, they take some fig leaves and they sew it together to try to make a, some kind of covering so that they can cover their, their shame and the sense of shame and cover their nakedness. And God shows up and he declares that that's not good enough. It doesn't cover enough. And so what God does is he kills an innocent animal. He puts something that is innocent to death in order to make skins, clothing in order to give them. And this isn't a story about how we got leather and why you like leather. He's not making a pair of leather chaps so they look cute and pretty. But what God is showing is, is whenever you sin, something must die. Adam and Eve, you sinned. I'm not gonna kill you, but I'm gonna kill this innocent animal here. And I'm gonna cover you with that, with that death of that animal. 
It's a life for a life. It's the picture of substitution. Think about whenever uh, God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son, your one and only son, Abraham, your promised son, your begotten son, I want you to put him to death. And Abraham and Isaac go up on a hill. And as they climb a hill, Isaac puts wood for the sacrifice on his back. When he gets to the top, they build the altar. And just as Abraham is about to put his son to death on that altar, God stops him and says, no, stop. Don't kill your son. Don't you kill your begotten son because I'm gonna kill my begotten son. And then he tells Abraham, Abraham, look over here. It says that God provides a substitute. There's a ram caught up in the thicket. And God says, put that ram to death in, my, in your son's place. It's the picture of substitution. It points forward to a cross, a cross that just as Stephen had read, that Jesus will bear the wood of the sacrifice upon his back as he climbs a hill called Golgotha where he will lay down his life, God's one and only begotten son dying and he's dying as a substitute. Dying as a substitute for Abraham's sin, for Noah's sin, for David's sin, for all of the New Testament, I mean, all of the Old Testament saints' sin, all of the New Testament saints' sins and for our sins, Jesus on the cross in our place. When Moses takes the Israelites to the place of Mount Sinai and Moses goes up and it's God who tells Moses about the law and then he also institutes a sacrificial system. That's not Moses' idea, that's God's idea. And he says, this is what I want you to do for the sins of the people. I want you to take an animal, a bull or a ram or a, a lamb or a dove, take an animal and for the sins of your people, this is what I want you to do. I want the high priest, I want him to lay his hands upon the head of this animal. It's a picture of transference. It's the picture of imputation. You're imputing their sins symbolically on the head of this animal. And then I want you to kill this animal and let his blood run out. Again, it's the picture of substitute. It's just as the Bible says, as I think the writer of Hebrews says, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And that's what's occurring here. And it's all a picture forward to Jesus. It's all a picture forward of what you and I get to do. We get to symbolically, by faith, lay our hands upon, upon the head of Christ. His blood-soaked, streaking head, we lay our hands upon that by faith as we think about our sins and the punishment for our sins being transferred to him. The prophets are replete with the pictures and illustrations of Jesus as our substitute, as even Pastor Derek read as the call of worship. As Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, four through six, surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs. He's carried whose sorrows? Our sorrows. Yet we've esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we've been healed. Do you see the substitutionary language throughout this text? But verse six, all like sheep have gone astray. That's you and I, we've each one, we've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Paul sums up the gospel succinctly in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I don't know if you believe in writing in your Bible, but if you did, this would be a fantastic text to highlight, be a great text to memorize. 
Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. It is that picture of imputation again. The punishment and the condemnation for our sin is being imputed to Christ. It's for our sake that God is making him. He's imputing our sin who knew no sin. Jesus never tasted sin, not in word, not in thought, not in deed, not in anything did he ever. He is the sinless son of God. He's not making him to be a sinner. But what Jesus is doing is he's taking on the chastisement. He's taking on the punishment for sinners like you and I. The sinless is being made to to know the punishment of sin. Jesus on the cross, he's being treated like a sinner coming under the judgment of God for our sins. So that what? So that in him, this is imputation again. Our sin is imputed to Christ. And now watch, Christ's righteousness is being imputed to us. Christ's moral perfection, Christ's sinlessness in, in record is being transferred, imputed to those who believe in Jesus. Christ's right standing with the Father is now being transferred to us. Now I gotta tell you, usually whenever I'm preaching, I'm on a certain text or a certain sermon or whatever, I'm usually with you in that text and sermon. Like whatever it is that I'm preaching, it's the same thing that I've been studying for the last like six days, you know? I mean, that's just generally how I work. I'm usually reading the text of scripture and I want the preaching to come from the overflow of what I've read and the time that I've spent in prayer throughout the week. But I gotta tell you, like the last two weeks, there's been a disconnect. Like not a show of hands, but if you wanna raise your hand, raise your hand. Or better than that, we're in church. You can say a muffled amen. For those of you that are done with 2020, let's hear an amen. Amen. I mean, the last thing that we've got to do in 2020 is for the Reds to win the World Series, which will be the most 2020 thing of 2020 is for the Reds to win. But I got great faith in them. I mean, of of all the bizarre years, this is our year. And so for those of you that don't know, Reds, it's a baseball team and baseball is with the bat and the ball, okay? And so the Reds are in, they're, they're, they're in it. They're in it and they can win it. They're in it to win it and they can do it. And so here they are. But nevertheless, I'm done with 2020. Honestly, like mentally to a degree, I'm done with the storyline of the Bible. I've already moved on. Last week, Pastor Sean preached and it gave me a week and a little bit over, a week and a half for me to work on what's next. Where are we going next? And so we, I've been praying and I've written up like where I think we're gonna be next. And in the first of October, on October the I think 7th or whatever, our elders meeting, I'll submit that to the elders for their like, yes, let's go. But I feel like we might be in First Timothy next year. And so I'm looking forward to that. I'm already thinking about it. I'm reading in First Timothy. I'm, re, um, I'm studying First Timothy. I'm devoting in First Timothy. And I'm getting all excited, but this is one of the the things that struck me about 1 Timothy, it's this, that the apostle Paul never got over the fact that Jesus loved him enough to die for him. Like you think about the apostle Paul, the greatest theological, human theological mind that we've ever known. I mean, the man is gonna write the book of Romans for crying out loud. Like I understand it's inspired of God, but nevertheless, this guy understood those things. I mean, Paul experienced things so, so, uh, so majestic and so beautiful in his revelations that God has to send a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to keep him humble. Paul's caught up into the third heavens. I don't even know what that means, but he's talking about those things. And yet all of this theological knowledge, yet the the cross of Christ was never lost in his heart. 
Paul writes 1 Timothy, Paul will write and he'll say things like on three different occasions, Paul just breaks into song. It's like, you know, this is the gospel that Christ has loved sinners like me. I'm the foremost, he writes. And then he breaks into a word of doxology, a little hymn of the, um, the old hymn. I love to tell the story. It's not a hymn that we sing here, but sometimes like, man, some of those old hymns, they're so rich in theology. And the last, um, the last stanza of that hymn, the last uh, line goes like this. It says, I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Oh, that we may be that church. Oh, that we may be like the Apostle Paul and we may never move past the gospel of Jesus Christ. We may never move past that the, that the truth that Christ has died in our place, that he is the perfect lamb of God, the substitute, the one dying in our place, that that would never be lost on us, but it may always strike a chord with us. Now listen, rather than spending our time in narrative alone, I wanted us to think through the implications of that event. I want to think about it like this. What does belief in the cross, what, what does that mean for us? What is Jesus as our substitute dying on a cross? What does, what does that mean for us? And so I started making a list of those things that I could think of through scripture, but I got to be honest, my list just kept getting longer and longer and longer. And I was trying to be concise and I was trying to think, what are those things? And then I said, you know, surely somebody else has done this. I mean, you know, like there's people far smarter than me that have done this. So I Googled something in there. I put in there, like, what does the cross mean for us? And then I stumbled across this book by John Piper. It's a booklet and it's called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. That's the true book. 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And so what I wanna do for our remaining time is I just wanna read you the table of contents. No, I'm joking. That's all I would have time to do. But you get the idea. There's 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. So I said, there's not enough time for that. Probably not gonna change much to, to go on and add to that to table of contents. And then I just, I kept thinking about this one particular text of scripture. It's on page 1023 of your pew Bible, if you're there. It's 1 John 4, 7 through 11. It was like, I just couldn't leave that text of scripture alone. So I want us to look at it for the next few minutes and when we'll close out. I guess in some way that was my introduction to my sermon, but we'll finish on time. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now the book of 1 John is like, it's like a fireball. Um, it is like a it, it is like a buzzsaw in our lives, and what John is saying here is there is a defensible truth here. There's an argument to be made, the natural spiritual conclusion that we can make, and this is what he said: nobody comes to understand the gospel. 
No one comes into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and remains the same. That's what Paul, that's what John is writing about over and over again in this short little letter of 1 John. It's an impossible task. And then what he goes on and add to this is the most fundam- fundamental way that that change is manifested, that that change shows up in our life. It shows up in this, that we love one another. John has already said it in this short letter two other times that we're called to love one another. And so we could say there's actually, I think four times in a short letter that he writes this. And so we could say this, that this must really matter. It must really matter what he is saying. And so notice how he, how he defends it, how he sets up the argument. He says this, here's the, here's the conclusion. We love one another. That's the argument that is made. We're called to do it. We're supposed to do it. We should do it. Brothers and sisters, beloved, he's saying, you are the loved ones of God. That's what beloved means. Beloved, let us do this. We're gonna love one another. And then he's gonna give us some reasons why. The first reason is this, because God is the source of genuine love. For love is from God, he says, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. There's the second and third one. Next, he says, because we have been born again. That's what he means, born from God. He's referring to not just you who were born, but that you were spiritually born again. You've been born again, and so you are alive with God. Number, th- um, number three, because we are in a right relationship with God. Not only have you been born of God, but because you are born again, you now know God. You're in a saving relationship with God. This implies intimacy with God, right fellowship with God, right communion with God. You know who God is. You're not ignorant of him. You know his love for you and you love him in return. That's what he's saying. And then John will state the conclusion in the opposite. Verse number eight, anyone who does not love God does not know God. He's saying the same thing, only in the reverse. If you don't love people, then you don't know God because ultimately God is love. He's saying it again. God is the source of genuine love. He says, because we have a living union with God. That is in verse number nine. In this was the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world look so that we might live through him. We have a living union with God. Christ, we're living through him. We're spiritually reunited to Christ. We're filled with his spirit. That's what he's saying for those of us who are saved, who are genuinely saved and Christians because we understand that God's love for us, it has been literally manifested. It has been demonstrated for us in the cross. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. He sent his son and his son to be the propitiation That's the wrath absorption. That's a word for substitution. That means on the cross, what Jesus is doing is he's he's substituting himself, absorbing God's wrath. That's what that word means. And because you understand that, you understand what Christ has done for you, you ought to love. That's a demonstration and a picture of what love is. Because we understand God's love for us. And then in the conclusion, again, he says, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought we ought to love one another. Now, ought in the Bible doesn't mean ought, what ought means here. Like we say all the time, well, we ought to do this and you ought to do that. And that means you, you should do this, you should do that, but it's even deeper than that. What he means here is ought is the idea of indebtedness. We ought, we are indebted to love one another. Why? Because of what Jesus has done for us. And this is important for us, church. 
This is so important for us. I said it a few weeks ago, and let me say it again, because it bears reminding that the greatest threat to us as Christians is that you and I will shrink back from loving others and thus prove that we are not saved. That in this time that we are in right now, a time of isolation, a time of looking with everyone with suspicion, what are you gonna give me? What are you carrying? What do you have? In a time of racial tensions, in a time where, as I said before, the, the line between what's seemingly right and wrong, who's in the right and who's in the wrong, when all of those things are so blurred, in a time like this of political upheaval, the greatest threat to you and I is not COVID-19. The greatest threat to you and I is not the government encroaching upon our religious beliefs or the government's overreach. The greatest threat to us in this time is not Joe Biden being the president of the United States of America. The greatest threat to us right now in this time is not another four years of President Trump. The greatest threat to us in this time is not a cashless new world order. The greatest threat to you and I is that we would shrink back from loving others and thus prove that we genuinely were not saved. That we had not really experienced the saving power and the saving work of Jesus. And I think that's why I was drawn to this text. It's so that today we can do what scripture tells us to do, that we, you and I, that today we could stir ourselves up, that we could stir each other up to love and good works. And that's my prayer for us, that I would be stirred up to boldly and sacrificially and genuinely with real affection, love others, and that you would do the same, that you and I in this church, that you and I would be marked by a deep and abiding and real love and genuine concern for each other and for others and for the world and for Jesus and for his fame. And that it would be evidence in the way that we live our lives and the way that we conduct our lives and the way that we greet one another and love on each other and invite each other into our homes and do all that we possibly can do for the fame and the glory of Jesus. That's why we're preaching this. This is why we're talking about this. I feel like we always, whenever we talk about biblical love, we always need to, to define biblical love because in our worldview and on our understanding and in our culture, love is so misconstrued and misunderstood. I will say often, I say about a certain food that I, I love that food, right? Or I love those things or I love that. And really it's not any of, it's not true love about those things. And so what is biblical love? Well, biblical love, I'm always on this working definition of biblical love, but here's the latest one. Biblical love is this. Biblical love is a warm regard for another, evidenced in a self-sacrificing and caring commitment to seek the highest good of the one loved. That's a little lengthy, so maybe I need to make it more concise, but let's break it down. At its heart, biblical love is a commitment. It's a commitment to love. It's not just a decision to love because people make cold-hearted decisions every day, but it's a commitment to love. But it's not a commitment to love others that's based upon, uh, that's not based upon or divorced from real emotion and real feeling. I mean, again, people make cold-hearted decisions every day. There's feelings that are involved here, but biblical love is more than just feelings. 
a warm regard and nice feelings about others, if you just had that as a definition, then all you're talking about is kindness. Now, kindness is something good. It's fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, and it also includes kindness. So love and kindness isn't the same thing. The Apostle Paul isn't being redundant there in Galatians when he says that. So it's more than just warm regard or warm feelings for others. There's gotta be more than that. The opposite of love is not just hate. Sometimes we think, hey, I don't feel any animosity. I don't feel ill will towards another person. I must love them. But that's not what the Bible's talking about at all when it talks about love. It's not, it never poses love and hate. When the Bible talks about love, what it's really talking about, the opposite of love would be indifference. It would be to feel apathy towards someone. It would be the absence of warm regard, absence of a caring commitment, absence of this, the desire to seek the highest good for that person. Biblical love is something other. Biblical love involves delight, not just duty, although there's a duty to be done. There's a call to self-sacrifice, a call to care for one another, a, ca a call to seek the highest good of the other person, but what's our motivation in that? What's, it's delight. It's not duty-driven. It's delight. It's a joy to serve others. I mean, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard, but the real base emotion, and whenever it is hard, when we don't want to do it, we got to recognize our own sinfulness in that. We got to recognize that that's us and that's the flesh. We're not to live anymore according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and the Spirit will always lead us in the way of love and the things of love. Now listen, certainly those outside of Jesus can show a shadow of biblical love. We see shadows of biblical love all the time. Unbelieving spouses can really genuinely love one another. Unbelieving parents can show sacrificial love to their kids. An unbelieving soldier can lay down his life for his fellow soldiers or lay down his life for this country. Those things are true. Those things are real. But, and, but all of those things is not a full fulfillment of biblical love. All of those kinds of loves that they are, they're shadows of biblical love. They're giving evidence to God's common grace that is this idea and notion of love. But genuinely, unbelievers cannot really seek out biblical love because look at what scripture, how we defined it or how I've defined it. Biblical love is that we seek out the highest good, the highest good of the one loved. And the highest good for any human being is that you would be saved and that you would live in conformity to Jesus Christ. You would be saved and you would be being conformed to Jesus Christ. And unbelievers don't care about that. Unbelieving parents genuinely don't care about those kinds of things being shaped and being nurtured in their kids. They're not praying for the souls of their children to be saved. Biblical love always has eternity in mind. Jesus didn't just come to make to earth to make earth a better place or to make us better human beings, but in fact, he promised the opposite. Jesus came with eternity in view. Jesus knew that our greatest good would be for us to have our sins forgiven and to receive eternal life. That is the truth of seeking it for the highest good for others. So just three ending points for us. Number one, born-again people love others. I know that's the big E on the eye chart, but we need to hear it again. Born-again people genuinely, affectionately, 
love others. They lay aside their, their good. They seek the highest good for others. And it's important that we say born again. I mean, it's what's used in the text, those born of God, those regenerated, those who have had the old heart of stone removed and a new heart placed in them. Those are the kind of people that really genuinely love others. I know you could say, well, Andy, why didn't you just say Christians love others? And, and that would be right. That would be true. But the problem is, is in our culture, everybody is a Christian. I just met with a friend of mine who's a church planter and he's a church planter up in the far uh, Northeast in, out, outside of Boston. My friend David was telling me, he was like, Andy, 90% of my community are atheists and agnostics. And he goes, man, you don't have no idea how hard it is to preach and teach the Bible there. I was like, I don't know that to be certain, David. 90% of our people are Christians. Every person that I meet is Christian, or at least they claim to be Christian, and yet they're not Christian. I think it'd be easier to reach somebody who, who didn't claim to be something, even though, and they weren't something, than somebody who claims to be something, and yet they're not something. And in our context, everybody claims, or most people claim to be Christian, and yet so few of them genuinely are born again. So many people in, in churches who claim to be Christians, and yet they do not love others. They don't even make an effort to do so. They're angry and they're unkind and they're impatient. They're brash and they're rude in speech. They're self-centered in their daily lives. They're hypocritically judgment, judgmental of others. Of such people, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, oh, my heart grieves and it bleeds for them. For they are pronouncing and proclaiming that they are not born of God. They are outside the life of God. And there is no hope for such people unless they repent and turn to him. Born again people, people that are in a genuine relationship with Jesus, we love others. That's what we do. It's part of our identity. It's part of the work that Christ has done in our hearts. Next, notice this, that Jesus is not only our example of love. The cross is not only just a manifestation as an example to the kind of love that God has for us, but it is also our divine enablement to love. It is born again, people, those who have experienced a work by Christ where Christ has, as I said, removed the heart of stone and placed in us a heart of flesh. And it is with that new heart, that very, the heart isn't just the, the, the thing with which we, we love with, as we would say, I heart chicken wings, I heart tacos, right? We would just say, well, that's love. No, it's not just that. The heart is the command center of our life. It's the very center of our being and what he's saying is that center has been reprogrammed, if you will. It's now been given a capacity to genuinely, affectionately, with warm regard and sacrificial care, love others. But it doesn't come from us. It comes through us. It's in the new birth that Christ gives us new taste buds, if you will. Right? How much easier would dieting be if you got new taste buds, right? If you could somehow trade in those taste buds that love upside down pineapple cake and ice cream, right? If you could somehow, the candy, what is, what is, whatever it is that you like, chips. If you could somehow trade in those taste buds for new taste buds that like asparagus and broccoli and cauliflower. For those of you in the room that like those things, what's wrong with you people? But how much easier that would be and yeah, that's what's happening in the new birth. 
You're getting new taste buds for the things of God. Bible studying isn't now like, bah, Bible studying. You're like, hey, you know what? This isn't so bad. And loving others isn't, bah. Yeah, it's hard sometimes. Self-sacrifice is hard. Crucifying your flesh is hard. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying there's a new desire to do it. There's new taste buds to do it. There's now an insatiable hunger to love, to love God and to love our fellow man. And lastly, the good news. Let's be honest. We stink, don't we? Most of us, when it comes to loving others, right? Now, don't do that to your parents, good rich kids. Don't get me in trouble. We fail. And here's the good news. Not only is Jesus our example of love, he's our enablement to love. And ultimately as well, Jesus is our substitute, even when we fail to love. And that's the good news of the gospel. That all of the law, Jesus says, hangs upon these two commandments to love God and love man. And as we evaluate our lives in accordance to those two laws, no one evaluates their lives according to that law and walks away and goes like, two thumbs up, I'm doing good. When the Bible says that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, nobody looks at that command and goes, woo, nailed it. Nobody. If you do, you're delusional. No one looks at the call to love fellow man and looks at their life and goes, you know what? Nailing it, doing good, got it down. We don't do that when we rightly understand what has been commanded and demanded for us. But then when we understand that, how, how short we come. See, the law, as Pastor Sean said last week, the law always lays us out. It always brings us low. It slaughters us. Paul said, it killed me. The law, when I thought about the law in right understanding, it killed me. It put me in the grave. It put me to death. It condemned me. And it does that for us every time, including this law. But it's only in the grave that we can experience resurrection. It's only in that that we can understand that Jesus, what is he doing on the cross? Well, he's dying in our place. He's dying for lawbreakers such as you and I who have broken most of God's laws, including those two laws. That when you and I, when we're honest about the fickleness of our love, when we're honest about how self-serving and how broken and how inadequate our love really is, it brings us low. And then we are to remember that Jesus has absorbed all of our sin, our past sin, including our present sin and inability to love others, our present sin of cold-hearted affections. And when we think of Jesus forgiving even in this present moment, though it should kindle our hearts toward love again. It brings us around in a circular fashion. We think about our fickleness and we evaluate our own selves and then we, we condemn ourselves. We feel it, the law condemns us, it puts us in the grave, it convicts us, all of those things are true. But then as we think about Jesus, it kindles a new love for us again. It kindles our hearts and makes our affections grow. When we think about the love of God that has been made a manifest 
among us, how Jesus has come into the world to abolish our sin, how he's taken the punishment for our sin. He's bore the wrath of God. He's died in our place. He's made us born again. He's given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us, he's not withholding anything good from us. He's giving it all to us. When we think of that, it kindles our love again. So let us end here. Let us end with what John said in 1 John chapter three. He starts off chapter three by saying this, see what kind of love the father has given to us that you and I should be called the children of God. Oh, that we would see that kind of love. That we would see that as a manifestation of God's love, that God has adopted us into his family. He's made us an heir and a co-heir with his son, Jesus Christ, that we are his. He's given us the spirit. And with the spirit, we cry out, Abba, which is like daddy. It's a term of endearment. Father, we're crying out to you. We get to do that because we're adopted in. See what kind of love the father has given to us. Even when we didn't love him, he loved us more. Even before we knew him, he loved us. He set his affections upon us. Gosh, I love the picture of adoption. I could preach that longer. And John closes it out by saying then this, then little children. See what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Now little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. Help us to love Jesus. Help us to love you and to love others well as a demonstration of your power in us, as a demonstration of our discipleship and our growth and our sanctification. May love for others be made manifest. May it overflow out of us. Lord, whenever we want to shrink back from loving others, may may your spirit be cultivated in our hearts and in our lives so that we may love others and love them better and love them more and love them more boldly. Lord, I pray that we would never close up our hearts when we think about people who are in need. Lord, I pray that our love would be genuine. I pray that we would be a church that would be marked by a, a warm regard, brotherly affections as you write about in your scripture, Lord. And that we would love. And now Jesus, in this time, as we, as we think about, as we think about the kind of love that the Father has given to us, as we think about the price that has been paid in order to adopt us into the family, as we think about you, Jesus, your example of your love and that, that power coming into our hearts and into our lives, as we taste it upon our, upon our lips through the bread and the juice that we're about to partake, may it excite our taste buds towards love and good works. In your name we pray, amen.